Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking with Timothy Britton-Catlin about his new book, Bleak Houses, Disappointment and Failure in Architecture. Timothy Britton-Catlin is senior lecturer at the New Kent School of Architecture, University of Kent. His writings appeared in the World of Interiors, Architectural Review, and many other publications. Timothy Britton-Catlin, thanks for taking time to t- speak with the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Chris. You know, thank you for writing this book and helping confirm for me that architectural criticism seems to be written for other architectural critics and not for the layman. I tend to want to know if the houses are nice to live in and if the other buildings suit their purposes, which is a degree of utilitarianism that most writing on architecture seems to ignore. So I guess the question I have is, am I a Philistine? No, of course not. You're a normal person. The problem is that there is an enormous gap between uh, the ways in which architecture is, is written about by different people. And architecture is written about by architectural critics and sometimes by newspapers, in a way that doesn't seem to touch on the architectural experience of most people. That, I think, is the problem, and that's the central problem that I've tried to address in this book. The great majority of buildings are put up by people who feel that they are excluded from architectural debate. That hasn't always been the case. We may perhaps cast a rosy glow that it doesn't deserve on the ordinary architecture, ordinary house architecture of the 18th and 19th centuries. But what you could say at that time was that there was a common language for speaking about buildings, for talking about them, for comparing them perhaps with the great works of architecture, uh, and for, in general, making them part of everyday culture. I think that's gone. I look at new developments, and I can't see really what they have, any, what they have to do at all with the great works of our time. There should be something, I think. There should be. But there isn't anything. So it's a gap that I'd very much like to see filled. Do we know when that kind of Manchian tone of architectural criticism began? Was there a specific point when the writing changed? Yes, there absolutely is. In fact, we can be very specific about it. I would say that it was in, I think it's March, I'm not sure of the month, I think March 1836, which is when the English architect Augustus Pugin, we might talk about him a bit later because he's an important figure, when he starts to attack the contemporary architecture of his day. Now, a lot of recent architecture in England had been terrible. Uh, It was perfectly reasonable to want to attack it. I think it was very dull. Many new buildings looked exactly the same as each other. If you looked at the new National Gallery, you wouldn't necessarily see that it was a different type of building from perhaps the British Museum or from what is now University College London or from a new theatre. They were the same, and they were dull. And Pugin attacked them, and Pugin attacked them in a very violent kind of language. And basically, he was saying that either architecture is good or it is bad. There is nothing in the middle. This is a way of speaking which caught on very quickly. It's very characteristic of the young men of the Gothic revival in England, and it spread everywhere. I think in many ways uh, it has had a... It might have been important at the time, but it's gone far beyond what it is. You'll see now that architecture critics will talk very often about things as being good or bad. Uh, I spoke a moment ago about buildings which don't seem to have anything much to add to culture, and they'd be described as bad buildings, and that's it. There's no conversation at all. There are no compromises. That was the terrible thing. Ruskin, the great uh, art critic, of course, spoke perhaps more violently than anybody else, but this is basically a Gothic revival phenomenon. I have a teacher, Andrew Saint. He was my doctoral teacher, and he used to say that everything begins in the 1820s and the 1830s. Everything that we know about modern life in some way begins there. And this is certainly a very clear example of it, I think. 
Pugin isn't that well known here in the States, but just so we're clear, he wasn't just a waspish architectural critic. He was one of the greatest architects and builders in British history, though his personal habits did shorten his career. Yes, it's, it, he, is, it's a, he is a strange figure, I think, historically. And one of the reasons for that is that he completely disappeared. He came off the radar for about 100 years. I don't really know how that happened. I think quite possibly, unlike many architectural superstars, he was not actually that interested in self-promotion. But let me say a word or two about him, because he's not only a figure of English importance. The reason why most people have come across him is that he was the decorative designer for the Palace of Westminster, the Houses of Parliament in England, and that, of course, is an enormous project. It's said that he did 1,000 drawings for the chamber of the House of Lords alone. This is an extraordinary, phenomenal person. And his impact amongst young, ambitious architects in England was gigantic. In fact, I think it's probably fair to say that of all the figures in English architectural history, he is really the only one who had long-lasting impact on a whole generation, and then another generation, and then another one. Very significant figure. But I should add that he was also, he had a hand in much of what went on to happen throughout the world. To give you a very obvious example of where you might see Pugenism, even if not Pugin himself, you might see Pugenism, for example, in Trinity Church in Manhattan. The architect was Richard Upjohn. He was British-born. He was a Pugin uh, disciple, I think it's probably fair to say. Uh, and very soon, buildings like that, mainly built by the Episcopal Church, began to grow all over the United States, sometimes in quite surprising places. There is a brilliant young architectural historian called Stephen McNair of the Alabama Historical Commission, and he has recently completed a study on the effects of the English Gothic Revival on really very small churches, sometimes in isolated villages in Alabama and in the surrounding states. Whenever you see a Gothic church in the United States or anywhere, uh, it's more common perhaps in British Empire countries, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand. It's a sign that in a sense Pugin has been there, the spirit of Pugin has been there. This enormous shadow cast by Pugin, I, I think it, it did only good for architecture, but I think it did a lot of harm for the ways in which People write about architecture. So uh, although Pugin is a central figure, perhaps, in my book, he's there for all the wrong reasons, as it were. This book is about failures in architecture, which are sometimes building-oriented, but as often as not can be laid to the feet of the architect, sometimes for personal failings, other times because history and technology have moved on. Is this a common occurrence? Yes, it happens all the time, and it happens in an extraordinary variety of ways. And actually, I haven't quite realized how many ways uh, it can happen. Go back to Pugin again for a second, perhaps not to Augustus Pugin, the one I was talking about, but to his son Edward. His son Edward was, I think, a classic failure because uh, he had almost every possible problem and posterity has not been kind to him. He incidentally tried to operate in the United States, but what defeated him almost certainly was what defeated him time and time again in England, and that is the fact that he was enormously bad-tempered and he fell out with everybody. Some people have a terrible personality problem. The fact that they have a terrible personality problem uh, sometimes doesn't matter, but sometimes it does. The uh, architect Eric Mendelssohn, I think quite possibly one of the greatest architects of the 20th century, was another similarly bad-tempered person, and actually, as it happens, suffered another further fate that architects can suffer, which is that many of his best buildings were demolished in the way that Edward Pugin's have been. I don't think that there are any convents and monasteries, for example. There are some whole areas of building, in, in Edward Pugin's case, where the whole lot have been wiped out. You can be a failure because your buildings went. It might be nothing to do with you yourself. Of course, it wasn't in Mendelssohn's case. 
you can be a failure because you happen to live at the wrong time, because you happen to design something at the wrong time. I, I came across a, uh, a fabulous character, uh, an architect called Percy Flaxman. He's now in his 90s, and I spoke to him about his work as the restoration architect of Kensington Palace. He had repaired a piece of Kensington Palace in London for Prince Charles and Diana Spencer when they first got married. He wasn't the interior designer, he was the architect. He re rebuilt parts of the palace. He added on a new porch in an early 19th century style. He put his whole life, really, certainly the last decades of it, into restoring uh, those type of buildings, buildings that weren't especially fashionable, perhaps, but he did it beautifully. Now, in the 1970s and early 1980s, there just wasn't any interest, any public interest, in that kind of quality of work. So, really, Percy Flaxman is an example of somebody who is overlooked in spite of having given everything that they have, including a lot of talent to architecture, because he wasn't in the right place at the right time. And that must have happened over and over again, I think. A word that comes to mind when I read this book was nostalgia. Prince Charles has been a pretty outspoken critic of modern architecture. In fact, he built an entire village that is a repost of modernism. One of the ways you discuss failure in the book is when buildings are built which harken back to an earlier, but may not be suited for the era in which they are built. So does a man like Prince Charles help British architecture with his views and efforts, or does he have any effect on the matter? It's an interesting question, mainly, not perhaps so much because of him personally, but because of all the different points that it raised. Let me, let me take you up on something, Chris. You've mentioned, for example, uh, that buildings might be built in a style which wasn't suitable for the current age. But uh, I would say that the idea that a building has to be uh, or has to look like it is suitable for the current age, this is part of the Gothic Revival bullying. The Gothic Revival argument was that you mustn't do something if it doesn't look like it's suitable for modern purpose, to which there are people. I think probably the British architectural historian David Watkin is the most uh, best-known example, who would say, who says? Who says that to build a neoclassical house in the 21st century isn't suitable for the times. It could be very suitable for certain purposes. It could be very suitable for a house. It could be what that person wants. It could be a further development of the neoclassical styles. There are all kinds of things that it could be, and nobody really has the right to say that it doesn't fit or it doesn't suit. Uh, when I was an architecture student, this type of bullying attitude, I think, was at its height, probably. I'm talking about the late 1970s, the early 1980s, and it was aggravated by the political situation in England, where the government had become much more conservative than it had done, which I think brought out probably the worst in many architecture school teachers for one reason or another. And the argument was, you can't do it, it doesn't suit. But, but who says? Now, Prince Charles's projects raised a number of different uh, ideas. One of those things, I think, is the idea of the, of the heroic failure on a grand scale. Many architects design buildings which they know will never be famous, that they will never, never attract attention, that critics won't look at them, that critics won't take them seriously, and so on. I think that the new urbanism movement, which is uh, as much or perhaps more an American movement than a Prince Charles movement, it's, it's a kind of large, grand failure. I don't mean, let me rapidly say, I don't mean by that that the practitioners are themselves failures. What I mean is that it is a failure in the sense that it doesn't catch on to the popular and fashionable spirit of the time. It's always fighting against it. Sometimes it doesn't really get resolved in the way that those architects would like to see resolved. They've got everything stacked up against them, and it forces them into becoming a, a kind of failure. There's another point, too, which I, would, I think is important here, and it somehow arises in the Prince Charles argument. I've been to Poundbury, the prince's town, by the way, and 
what is very odd about it is that all the houses are built in different styles from different periods next to each other. It's quite a strange and unsettling feeling, I think, and I think probably too many people have found it too strange. But where it comes from is sentimentality. Now, this is one of the themes that I've addressed in this book, and I talk about it with a degree of caution. For most people, sentimentality is conflated with kitsch. That's how architecture teachers see it. That's how architecture critics see it. And many people would see Prince Charles's villages, for example, as being kitsch villages. But I don't think that that is necessarily true. I think it's perfectly possible to be sentimental about things without expressing them in a physical or visual form, which itself is kitsch, or even necessarily nostalgic. People are sentimental about many things. And when I say sentimental, I think what I really mean probably is that they are irrational. Certain buildings and certain memories are more important to them than other ones, and they would like to see those qualities, those memories, perhaps expressed in their architecture. But as soon as you touch on the word sentimentality, the bullying mentality sets in and starts to tear it to pieces. Uh, it's not right, I think, because many people have a sentimental side to them. Sometimes very rational people actually have a sentimental side to them. Other forms of cultural expression seem to be able to do it. Not always. There's kitsch everywhere, I think. But it's something which architects have been noticeable uh, in their failure, in their uh, attitude towards it. Ordinary houses, you know, ordinary what are called row houses, I suppose, terraced houses, the kind of things that create the normal urban environment. People want to see, when they see new houses like this, they want to see things that they remember, things that they notice, things that mean something from their past. The architects themselves want to express something of their memories of the places they've been and so on. And yet, it's very hard to talk about these things in anything except the most patronizing and, I think, also pretentious terms. It's an argument that hasn't been resolved. Is that question of sentiment one reason you think that novelists can teach architectural critics something about writing? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. And actually, uh, in the case of novelists, they aren't writing kitsch, are they, very often? They can write uh, very well in such a way that they can convey the sense and the feeling of a place, that's to say it's sentimental, without being too grand about the architectural concept. One of the cases that I've mentioned in my book is, of the, is from the novel by Anne Hollinghurst called The Stranger's Child. And at the beginning of that book, uh, Hollinghurst describes a house without actually describing it in the way that any kind of architecture student or architecture critic would. The critics, the teachers, the students will try to talk first about the concept. What type of concept does this house represent? What does it mean? And they'll also, of course, they'll say, where is it new and where is it creative and so on. Whereas what Hollinghurst does in his, in, in his novel is he just describes the house through the experience of being in it. By the time one has read the chapter, it's possible perhaps to get that concept, to get that overall feeling, to understand what style it is. But he doesn't do it blatantly in any way. And that's much closer to how people experience houses. People do, most people do move from room to room. One of the great tragedies for us architectural teachers and historians is that most people don't really take an interest in the way in which architecture is generally written about. Perhaps they don't take much of an interest in architecture anyway. And that's the critic's fault, I think, for pitching it somewhere else. Are there some exercises listeners can do to develop a better sense of how to look at buildings in a more nuanced way than the triumphalist tone you write about in your book? Yes. Look for the story. What is the story about? 
One pair of architects who feature in my book are two British architects, mid-20th century ones, called Seeley and Paget, John Seeley and Paul Paget. And they were very successful. They were surveyors to the fabric of St. Paul's Cathedral. They did a lot of work. But their buildings were terrible. They were absolutely outrageous. They don't look as if anyone with any artistic sense had designed them. And I'm afraid to say that's true. Neither of them had any artistic sense. In fact, Paget had no architectural qualification at all. And yet there must be a story in there, is what I couldn't help thinking. There must be a way of writing about architecture which can cope with things that seem problematic from the conventional point of view. There is a story. The story is about those two. It's about those two as a pair of architects who work together, about those two as a couple and their life together, about how they lived and how they saw each other and, and the type of things in English life they wanted to perpetuate. It isn't about any of the triumphalist things. It isn't about any of the concepts. It isn't about anything else. But it's just as interesting. And I also feel that there are many buildings, maybe failure buildings. They could be buildings in, in any one city, in any one's hometown, where the story about what the architect wanted to do and how they wanted to do it, how they were frustrated, perhaps, from doing it the way in which they wanted to do, the way in which the building didn't really quite work, the way in which the building didn't live up to their own expectations, perhaps their own disappointment at what it was that they were able to do, perhaps their own bad relations with other people, perhaps their own temper, as with Edward Pugin and with Eric Mendelssohn. All of these things, all of them conspire to make the building in the end not much of a success. I think once one takes one's eye off the success thing, once one moves the aim away from trying to tick, tick the boxes of the triumphalists and the bullies uh, from the 1840s onwards and starts to look at the building in human terms, in human ambition terms, then you'll find a whole lot more. And I suspect that you'll find other stories everywhere. I, found, I went to look at a, a local church uh, in the town where I live. It's a bit of a bodge up. Once I began to look at the story of it, how it came about to have one end in one style and at the other end in the other style and so on, I began to realize that really there were not, not, not just a lot of broken dreams because that's in a way quite a conventional thing and, and maybe quite a heroic thing. There were a lot of frustrations and missed opportunities uh, and a lot of frustrations of being an architect. So look for the story. That's, I suppose, what the motto of my book is. Timothy Britton Catlin, the author of Bleak House's Disappointment and Failure in Architecture. Thanks for being on the MIT Press podcast today. That's been a pleasure, Chris. Very nice to speak to you. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press. All rights reserved.